Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Jonathan Kay. Jonathan Kay is a Canadian editor of Quillette. He's also a co-host of the Quillette Podcast. He also hosts his own podcast called The Wrong Speak Podcast. He is an op-ed writer at the National Post. He's also an author of five books. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And uh, I just, even by the standards of, of COVID, I, I feel like... Um, I didn't really prepare my appearance for this video podcast. So <laughs> sometimes you think it's going to be an audio podcast and then you find out it's video and you have like 20 seconds to make yourself presentable. So uh, no disrespect to your viewers uh, that I'm you know, wearing a hoodie. <laughs> yeah. And, and I didn't get my hair properly styled. My style. I give my stylist the day off. Oh, that that that's absolutely fine. It's not like uh, uh, I, I'm kind of known for not being well dressed myself, so so it's not okay. It's so whenever my wife watches it, she's like, "This is perfect." We should someone. <laughs> she's not gonna have. No, well, no, but it's important that they have people on the same page. So I did Al Jazeera English yesterday, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I I was a little more put together than this. But the host was like, he looked like he was the MC at some sort of award ceremony. <laughs> So like it was like this podcast where our two pictures were together and uh, the guy's name was Peter Dobby. Just you could Google him. I mean, he looks like a film star from the 1960s or something like that. Fred Astaire or something. And so he's sitting there in almost like formal attire. And I look like I just came in from a workout. It's (laughs) so I like the fact you and I are roughly aligned in terms of our style. Well, that uh, that's a good start. So, so Jonathan, obviously, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the what's going on right now in Canada. But, but one of the biggest reasons I wanted to call you and talk to you on the podcast about was that uh, this is where I come from. Um, in the age of the internet, what happens is you go on your social media timeline, you see odd videos about what's happening here, what's happening there, and then we we tend to make sweeping generalizations about countries, their politics, their culture. I mean, it happens all the time. It happens, uh, I'm sure Canadians do it about India, Indians do it about Canada. But at the end of the day, we we are now, the more the internet becomes penetrative across the world, the more, you know, we're like a global system. So so the, the attempt today through this podcast, at least from my point of view, was not only do we use the Canadian truckers' protests and we talk about it, but I also wanted to understand Canada, Canadian politics, and I, I, and I wanted my viewers and listeners who are going to be listening to the audio version later on too, um, to know a little bit about Canada in general. So, so can we start with this, Jonathan? Could you lay the ground for everyone about what exactly are these? truckers protests about because it's all over the place if i go to a american portal which leans slightly to the left it is like apocalypse now all hell has broken loose i don't understand what's happening then i'll go and watch a few clips of tucker calls and i'm not even talking about canadian media i'm talking about american media and their perception and whether we like it or not american media does tend to have a disproportionate effect on the global discourse so what exactly is the truckers protest all about well, um, the background here is that Canada is a fairly politically homogenous nation by the standards of most countries. Uh, and one, one of the reflections of this is like our vaccination rate is extremely high. Our vaccination rate is almost 90%, which is great from a public health point of view. I'm, I'm very pro-vaccine. We shouldn't be forcing people to get vaccinated, but I myself uh, am a big supporter of the science. 
However, unlike in other countries where maybe it's 60, 40, 70, 30, because the 10% who are unvaccinated or who oppose vaccine mandates, um, they've become very politically marginalized. None of the political parties, including the conservatives, have much of an interest in catering to what is now a fairly small tranche of the population. And so as a result, you had some of them who, these are truckers, mostly in Western Canada, but certainly not only in Western Canada, who basically didn't see any institutional avenue to make their views heard. And specifically, one of their demands, the central demand, was that Canada get rid of vaccine mandates for truckers, transport personnel who cross international borders. So you go to the United States, you come back, uh, you shouldn't have to be vaccinated. This was their specific demand, but really it was a proxy for a whole bunch of other complaints about uh, the severity of lockdowns, uh, the fact that the, the pandemic, at least as we speak now in, in mid-February uh, 2022, we are currently in a period where it looks like ICU numbers are dropping all across Canada, deaths are dropping. Uh, there's a strong argument to be made for um, returning society to normal, as some provinces are doing, because health policy is a provincial uh, jurisdiction in Canada. Um, and you have these, these truckers, uh, they organized under the banner of a freedom convoy. It wasn't just truckers, but it sent, you know, the main core of the, the protest was, was truckers who rolled the east from Western Canada in late January and have taken up positions in Ottawa. I mean, it's kind of an unusual protest. It's sort of like a big parking lot. It's somewhat similar to these, <clears throat> to these French protests you'd seen in the last few decades where a bunch of truckers will block highways, except this one is more static. Uh, they've been, it's now been almost three weeks that they've parked some of their big rigs in downtown Ottawa. Um, and it's an unusual spectacle. I, I know you're talking to me from India uh, there's all sorts of stereotypes about Indian political culture, but certainly the least that can be said about India is that you're no stranger to mass movement political protests. Uh, they, you know, they may take the role of farmers, they may take the role of, um, you know, um, class opposition to subsidies, ending subsidies. Uh, there may be a religious dimension. Mostly they're peaceful, sometimes they're violent, but the idea of thousands of people appearing on the streets to protest something, as in most countries, that is not a strange phenomenon. Uh, and in Canada, I wouldn't say it's an unusual phenomenon, but it's certainly an unusual phenomenon for it to go on for days and days and days. Uh, you know, we'd had Black Lives Matter protests, but, you know, they'd have the protest and it would they'd go home. And because it's so unusual, all these trucks and protesters in Ottawa, uh, I would say the political and to a certain extent the media class have kind of lost their mind a little bit about it. They convinced themselves that this was the Canadian equivalent of the January 6th uh, Capitol riot in the United States. Uh, as is typical in Canada, there's this reflex to look to the United States for some sort of predecessor. Um, you know, the idea the, <laughs> there was some single bozo who brought a Confederate flag. And of course, you had a thousand voices on Canadian social media, including journalists and otherwise upstanding voices with, you know, saying, oh, here it comes, uh, you know, <laughs> Confederate uprising. They didn't say Confederate uprising, but it became this moment of social panic because what's happened is because I would say right-wing populism, certainly anti-vaccine stuff, is such a marginalized voice that Canadian institutional politics has become very lazy about debating them 
And so it's just much easier to throw smears at them and say, oh, you know, they're Nazis, they're white supremacists, they're this and that. And one of the big surprises, uh, these protests in, um, in Ottawa and elsewhere has been the very large number of non-white people who've shown up. This did not surprise me. I actually did a, a, an article 10 or 15 years ago about the trucking industry in Quebec, which is a lot of it has been taken, you know, there's Sikh families. Uh, yeah. If you look at the, the yeah. 401, the, the, the truck traffic going back and forth between Toronto and Montreal, it's hugely uh, Sikh family businesses, uh, which is great. But uh, there's the stereotype in, in the media that these truckers, there's just a bunch of white Archie Bunker types, which, which they're not. I mean, I'm sure some are, but you know, it's diversity. Um, yeah, and uh, and so yes, the original spectacle was all these trucks, these protesters in Ottawa, but then there's been the secondary spectacle of the media and political overreaction to it, and the protesters kind of got what they want because they showed up the the elites as they see them, who they hate. Um, you know, sneering at them, dismissing their views, uh, libeling them as, as all white supremacists and such. And Canadians have gotten a pretty good look at that. And now, as, as we speak, this is February 15th, yesterday, uh, Valentine's Day, ironically, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked emergency powers. Uh, this is the first time under the auspices of this law, which dates to the, the 1980s, uh, to which will allow the government to do all kinds of draconian things like freeze the bank accounts of non-criminals who are suspected of convoyist sympathies and such. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm prattling on, but the great irony of this is that when the truckers rolled eastward, everyone, including me, kind of sneered at the idea that Justin Trudeau was leading some kind of like autocratic government, that it was fascistic to impose these mandates. That was all seen as overblown hysteria. So how did the political class, Justin Trudeau in particular, respond? By, by answering to that stereotype of being an autocrat and invoking these powers. I mean, these are emergency powers. So this is this, this 1980 era law, the emergency powers that he's invoked. This was designed for things like real insurrections. Uh, you know, this the, the predecessor law was was used for things like the FLQ crisis, a real terrorist crisis in Quebec. And in, 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 uh, this is dating you know, almost more than 50 years ago. Um, you know, the law was used to, to throw Ukrainian Canadians in internment camps, Japanese Canadians in internment camps, uh, the former World War One, the latter in World War Two, Italian Canadians. Um, and, and now he's using <laughs> he's using the um, the successor law basically to solve a parking problem in Ottawa. Uh, so Trudeau, I mean, I don't think any of the actors come off looking particularly good. I don't think the protesters are, you know, it's not like there's this groundswell of centrist opinion across Canada in support of the protesters. A lot of people think it's time for them to leave Ottawa. Um, and they made a nuisance of themselves uh, at the, uh, the, the um, I think it's called the Ambassador Bridge where, uh, where they're blocking trade uh, for days. That's been cleared out, thankfully. Uh, but, but no one looks particularly good in this. The media has looked terrible and biased. Uh, Trudeau may come off the worst from it, although it's early days. You know, politics is unpredictable. But that's probably more detail than you wanted. Uh, but um, you didn't cut me off, so I kept going. No, 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 no. This yeah. was perfect. So yeah. I just have a few follow-up questions. So there's this image that most of the truckers who are parked over there or people who are part of the protest are basically anti-vaxxers. So... 
I'm really confused because there are a lot of opinions that are floating there. Some people say, no, they're actually not anti-vaxxers, a, a significant um, chunk of the people who are part of the truckers convoy or a truckers protest uh, in Ottawa, for example, are actually vaccinated people who yeah. just are fed up of the mandates. They, uh, for example, there are different mandates in different states. As of now, uh, if, if I remember correctly, I checked yesterday, four Canadian provinces have said they're going to be lifting the mandates. In, yeah. And Ontario, if, if I remember correctly, is going to lift most of the mandates from the 1st of March. Yeah. Now, and 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 if sorry if i may and and uh doug ford who's the premier of canada i believe has also announced he's getting rid of the the vaccine passport system uh which is the the system of information control that a lot of people object to uh, i don't object to it but for a lot of people that's a source of objection all right so so in that scenario i'm 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 really confused so what is the true face like i i saw a few interviews I think it was True North that are interviewed. I, I tried to go to as many Canadian uh, sources too uh, on all sides of the spectrum. So I did go to True North too. And and I was talk, uh, looking at the interview. I, I think there were three of them. Uh, there was one lady and two gentlemen. And and I, I, I apologize. I forgot their names. I'm very bad with names. But uh, they were talking about they personally were vaccinated. Yeah. So they, if, if I could jump in there because... Um, so I don't want to use this opportunity to plug my own podcast um, because I think that's bad manners on podcast. But please do, please do. <laughs> if anyone, so it just so happens that yesterday I posted an episode of the Quillette podcast. Um, that's Q U I double L E double T E, folks, uh, in which I, I interviewed two, I don't know, leading protesters. They're 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 protesters in Ottawa who've been there since the beginning, uh, since late January. One is a truck driver. He's he's also an excavator and drives a truck. Uh, the other is not a truck driver. He's a tradesperson, but he acts as what they informally call um, a block captain for the protest. So he, he helps organize logistics for the protesters in Ottawa. And it was a very interesting discussion because one of them was vaccinated and one of them wasn't. So the guy who's the trucker, you know, one of my first questions uh, I think it's considered bad manners among the protesters. But my, one of my first questions for the trucker during the podcast, and people can listen if they want, is I said, are you vaccinated? And he said, no, I'm not vaccinated. I says, I'm totally cool if other people get vaccinated, but I don't, you know, I'm not sure yet. Um, you know, I've, I, he says, I have elderly people in my family and I've discussed with them, this with them. And every, you know, we're, they're educated about my choice. So it's not like I'm springing this on people in my environment. And then, the other guy got on because I was interviewing both at the same time and he kind of chastised me a little bit in polite terms for even asking if they're vaccinated. But, you know, it's I, I think it's an important question uh, for reasons we're discussing. Um, and he himself was interesting and he is not an anti-vaxxer. So it came out, you know, I had my own stereotypes. So I, I said to him, well, I guess this is the second guy who the one who chastised me. And I said toward the end of the podcast, I said, well, you know, I guess you and I disagree about the science of vaccines because I just sort of assumed that he was suspicious. You know, maybe he'd watch Joe Rogan's podcast and all that stuff. And uh, and I, I kept this in the edit of the podcast where he he said, no, you know, you've made an incorrect assumption. I, I, I believe the science is in favor of the vaccines. Um, and he was very specific. He said it keeps ICU occupancy down. It saves lives, like all the reasons to get vaccinated and, and by the way, I just I shamelessly tell people who listen to podcasts where I appear on is if you're listening to this, I, I support 
vaccines. And it's something you should consider. I don't think the government should force you, but um, I, I believe the science favors vaccines. So I'll, I'll shut up so about that. I'll shut up about that because people don't like being, and they shouldn't like being lectured about it because it's counterproductive. Anyway, um, and it was, it was kind of an eye-opener for me because he, he was just as educated about the, the benefits of vaccines as me. He just said, on principle, I don't think the government should be using direct or even indirect methods to force people to get vaccinated. Uh, public information is fine, but if you're a trucker who makes his, his living crossing the border to deliver goods, pick up goods, you're, you're essentially, the vaccine mandates essentially force you to get vaccinated because, you know, if you don't do it, you can't put food on the table for your family. And he said, not in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, uh, this, this is an unprincipled policy for a government to impose on people in a democracy. I'm not even sure if I agree with him because, you know, surely there are, are communicable diseases that are so serious that, that, a democracy can impose this sort of thing. I don't think Omicron, the Omicron variant answers to that description because the Omicron for people, if, if you look at the numbers, it's the numbers are approaching that of like a really bad flu season. But I certainly think Delta and the predecessor variant, the original variant of COVID were bad enough they, that the government, a democratic government could mandate all this stuff. So he and I had a, a good discussion about it, but he was not some rabid anti-vaxxer. And by the way, neither was the, the unvaccinated guy, the trucker who I spoke with. Um, these are not people who are uneducated or are simply spouting off uh, nonsense from you know some pseudoscientific uh, TikTok channel or something like that. They've done their homework. Now, these are two people. Are there people, and they acknowledge that there were people in the protest who were conspiracy theorists. You know, the vaccine is whatever, George Soros, Bill Gates, take your pick. Um, on the other hand, I live in a very nice, wealthy neighborhood. I can walk down the street and I can find conspiracy theorists, you know, who, who have their own, you know, la-di-da, health food, organic uh, Reddit group conspiracies about vaccines. You know, vaccines come in, they, <laughs> in working class and uh, knowledge class flavors. So anyway, I, that was an eye-opener for me. And, and I've done a bunch of interviews with these truckers. Uh, and it's, it's important because it helps dissipate stereotypes about who they are. Yeah. You know what I find fascinating in this entire process is that, the, the, look, I'm, I'm very open about this. I've never been pro-mandates. In fact, one of the things I'm very happy about is the Indian government, although our vaccination rates for a country with a billion plus people is actually pretty decent now. We have managed to really clock some really good numbers. But the thing is, the Indian government was very clear when, you know, when, there was a petition and I think in one of the petitions, the courts asked the government that, are you going to impose vaccine mandates? The government was clear. We're not going to impose vaccine mandates. But but in India, by and large, other than outside of three, four districts uh, in southern India, there are not really a lot of anti-vaccine people. Now, the reason I think in India, people were not really going for the COVID vaccine at a certain stage was before the Delta wave. It's a threat perception issue, right? Um if this was the bubonic plague, you would have every single person trying to find a vaccine because they knew they were going to die. The thing with COVID is it's more dangerous than the flu, but it's not really right there. Uh, and I guess that's what creates this problem. Yeah, I, I, I push back on that. I mean, if you look uh, at some of the scenes from the Lombardy region of Italy in early 2020, um, it wasn't quite bubonic plague, but it was bad. Um I mean, I remember um, 
God, was it, it a Bergamo? Is that the name of the, 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 the northeast of Milan, if I remember? It says, you know, you had a small regional newspaper that was publishing four or five pages of death notices in every issue. Um, that, again, not bubonic, you know, bubonic plague wiped out in some, you know, depopulated like 60% of the population of continental Europe in some parts, but uh, it was pretty bad. And, and, and that's, those, those, those are the scenes that made me realize um, governments need to have special powers to deal with this kind of stuff. And, and I stopped having any time for purely libertarian responses to it. Um, but, but I think you're right that COVID was sort of a, is, was a border case between exactly ordinary communicable diseases and truly apocalyptic scenarios out of science fiction, uh, yeah. or, or, or out of, you know, ancient history, like, uh, um, you know, the Antonine plague of, of the second century and stuff, or the Athenian plague, or, you know, it, it wasn't like half the population dropping dead, but you had parts of Europe where, you know, towns where two or 3% of the population died. Even in the United States, I mean, the United States death toll is, I think it's almost a million now from COVID. That's like yeah, almost, that. almost double the death toll from the civil war. Uh, mm -hmm. It's 0.3% it's, it's of the American population, which in modern times is, I mean, it's, it's essentially apocalyptic, no, uh, but it's, uh, this is a historical event. And again, a purely libertarian approach isn't going to get us anywhere for that. Oh, oh, I agree with you, especially which is why I've always maintained in my personal view that especially the elderly, uh, even with the boosters, I think the boosters are good, especially if you're uh, in uh, if you're immunocompromised or you are in the 60 and above age group. Yeah. Uh, I think it's absolutely a good thing. But again, it comes to a point that when especially now and I'm not saying it's an ironclad rule that pandemics over the period of time do tend to, you know, uh, decrease in their intensity in terms of, uh, you know, the death, the yeah. death toll for various reasons. But, but the thing is that when it comes to stuff like this, I don't see governments across the world really, you know, doing that. I'll give you an example of stupid policies that have been done in India. I know Quebec also did it. So that was one of those uh, rare incidents where, you know, we were chuckling in India. Okay, at least the Canadians also believe that COVID suddenly becomes active after 10 p.m. That, that was the stupidest thing, you know, to say we'll do a night curfew and suddenly COVID becomes active in the night. I it's like, don't I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, it does. When you put it in that sense, like, oh, it's uh, it's more active after dark. But as, as the parents of teenagers, I can tell you that... Um, you know, a lot of the people who communicated Delta in particular, um, you know, teenagers who sleep until till noon, uh, maybe, you know, get on Zoom for school. Uh, and then, you know, 8, 9 p.m. after dinner, they start to party. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I have a little bit of a different perspective being being a parent of teenagers. Uh Quebec is, is, is a funny example. So my sister lives in Quebec. I, I went skiing in Quebec over the holidays. Quebec is such an interesting example because on, on one hand, um, it's an extremely educated society, but you go into like a pizzeria to pick up a pizza there and you couldn't sit down and have your meal, but there'd be like 50 people in the restaurant waiting for their pizza to take home. And they were all like laughing and talking and stuff like that. And, and I'd be there saying like, this is like a super spreader event, 
But then you'd go to the gas station and the guy at the gas station would yell at me because I hadn't sanitized my hands before I used the pump. You know, he made me take my gloves off, sanitize my hands, use a pump. And I was like, first of all, this disease doesn't primarily propagate through through fomites, right? Like we've yeah. we've known that that it's not a surface borne, primarily a surface borne ailment. It's it's respiratory ailment. So <laughs> um there, and I've seen this here in Toronto where sometimes the rituals of public health become more important than the substance. Uh, and so you'd see people in public parks, you still see it, people in public parks cycling with masks on. Um, you see actually some, some of the, um, the reporters in Ottawa have observed this, that many of the most fearful people in regard to the disease in Ottawa where they're doing reporting are like 25 year olds who are boosted and can't wait to get their fourth shot, who go outside with two masks and their entire social media life is bragging about how they don't see anybody. Like it becomes a sort of element of religious faith. And for that subculture, public health becomes a kind of performative um, thing. And it because it becomes part of their identity, their sort of tribal identity becomes linked to their puritanical adherence to public health. It also becomes very difficult to get rid of that. And, you know, someone comes along and say, hey, look at the ICU numbers. We don't have to do this stuff anymore. They have very mixed feelings about that. Um, the, you know, this is who they are now. They spent the last two years essentially curating their social media identities based on their adherence to public health mandates. You get rid of those mandates and they're just, they're nobodies like you and me. Who wants to, who wants to yeah. be like that? Sounds like a crisis of meaning. It's a hundred percent a crisis. I mean, look, we live, you know, I know you, you have a philosophical background. Um, people need a theory of evil. Um, and if the theory of evil is not religious based, um, it, they need to find it in politics or, um, you know, the metaphor of disease provides an outstanding uh, uh, explanation, you know, in regard to theodicy, uh, because disease literally kills people. And if you can link a certain kind of, of habit of mind or political orientation to the propagation of disease, uh, this gives you a very powerful metaphor for ascribing meaning to your day-to-day -day rituals, you know, putting on masks. and I mean, these have very real life-saving uh, consequences, but sometimes even when the reality that underpins those rituals goes away, you hang on to the symbolic aspects because it, it provides it provides you with a way to separate yourself from others. You know, you're a believer versus a heretic. You have three masks, your neighbor has two. Uh, you know, I, I'm part of the Jewish tradition. Uh, I, I'm Jewish by not observant, but I'm Jewish. And you know, I'd go to Israel and I'd see these apartment buildings and the residents of one apartment building would say like, you know, our, our, our Shabbos elevator, you know, we, we've programmed it in this way and we, our whole building is kosher and it's not just kosher, it's glat kosher, but that building over there, you know, they, they say they're kosher, but they're not really kosher. Like you see stuff like this translated into COVID where I'm wearing an N95 mask and you're not, it becomes a demarcator of status. Uh, and, and that's when people like me start losing faith when our politicians start catering to that kind of thing instead of catering to real public health, right? Yep. Uh, and this is where I, 
I want to talk about the role the Prime Minister of Canada has played. So, so this is where I come from, from an Indian who's looking at it from outside, right? Especially this Emergency Powers Act, whatever it is called in Canada. So a few months ago, you know, or a couple, year and a half ago, around approximately, we had this the famous farmers protest in India. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there were there was a law passed. I still maintain. I think it would have benefited farmers in India, which is this is the the best part is that the same laws are passed in every single Western democracy. That is exactly what was passed. Nobody read the law, by the way, which was the funny part in the entire Western media. Nobody read the law. Um, the law was a good thing for the farmers, but like, so I'm ethnically Punjabi. Just, just just to let you know. So I know a little bit about Punjab, you know, which is my, although I'm born and raised in Maharashtra, which is a different state. And my father is also from uh, Mumbai. He's also born here, but we go back and forth. We're ethnically Punjabi. We have families there. So obviously this was, the farmers protest was basically uh, about two castes in Punjab. Uh, interestingly, one of the castes is <laughs> something that I am from, which is the, the 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 baniyas or the khatris who are you know in in hindi and punjabi there is a word called artiyas which is basically middlemen by the way and just and as then, just as i my understanding is that the caste system is has been formally abolished in india for quite some time oh, but but it is oh yeah, yeah it's it is observed in, informally if i understand correctly uh it, it is observed informally in different ways in different uh, in different forms but uh, in urban india you don't find it as much like uh, in urban india it's not that like i am someone who would fall into the category who believes in the annihilation of caste like mm -hmm. i am a godless uh, person who actually literally believes in the annihilation of that system so which, which, i'm only by the way, using as I understand, is one of the bases for Sikhism. Uh, if I understand correctly, Sikhism uh, was was to a certain extent a reaction to to the the caste system. But maybe I'm misinformed about that. What well, that is one of the claims, but uh, 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 I don't know how to put it. But they're as casteist as anyone else. If you used to ask me, I'm a Punjabi. I, I'm a Hindu Punjabi. But I mean, so what was the farmers' protest? It was a Jat Sikh protest. So in Punjab, there are different castes, right? There are Ramgadiyas, there are Ravidasiyas, there are different different castes. But if you look at the entire makeup of the, I mean, Terry has covered this. I mean, you know Terry, I know Terry. Terry, Terry Malewski. You mean Terry Malewski? Yeah, Terry Malewski. Terry is very, very much aware of the caste structure of uh, Sikh society. So if you were to ask Terry, yeah, yeah, those are Jet Sikhs, he would be the first one to tell. I like, I like the way an Indian podcast. Terry is so, so famous. He in India. He goes by one name. <laughs> he's Terry. <laughs> yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's brilliant. I mean, he he, he's absolutely brilliant. He, yeah, he's brilliant. So, so the thing was that what I found interesting was that I, I've always been someone who believes that. So in India, you have you know places where you can go and protest and. You can stay there. In fact, uh, I remember in 2010-11 there was this huge anti-corruption movement that led to the formation of one of India's. Uh, for politicians today, which is Arvind Kejriwal. And I was one of the people who was, uh, you know, the founder members of, uh, in Mumbai at least, of India Against Corruption, where it was basically a movement against corruption. Now, I got no issues. We never blocked roads, right? But the farmers' protest became what? It started blocking toll roads. It, it came occupied roads. And the Indian government, unlike the Canadian government in this case, actually did not take them out. It let them protest, let them protest. And eventually it came to a point where the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, which I think was a wrong move, he cancelled the laws for various reasons, partly national security, partly electoral, partly they're just wrong, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, and there was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau giving sermons from Canada 
which is very interesting about how India should follow democracy. So just to give you a perspective that now when, uh, in a way from an Indian's perspective, when the tables are turned, now you have your own street occupants. You use the most draconian style. By the way, so, so there's a very funny image going around on Indian Twitter where there's an image of Indira Gandhi, which is a former prime minister of India. And she's one of the, she's the only prime minister in India who actually used the emergency act where you get draconian powers in the government. And interestingly, in the history of India, the moment Indira Gandhi lost because there was a huge public revolt against her, the entire country erupted after the emergency was imposed and a lot of opposition leaders uh, of the, uh, the then you know political opposition including communists and th at that time you know it was B members of bjp atal bihari Vajpayee, lal krishna Advani. i mean it was jansang then on bjp and but was this you know, was the, this the golden temple period in the mid 1980s no no way before the golden temple it was 1975 okay. when the emergency was so it's a very funny meme that's going around in india so there's an image of indira gandhi and they have morphed Jan justin trudeau on her and uh, they're just calling her justindra gandhi which is a, <laughs> a, <laughs> the world is so, <laughs> such a weird place and what's weird so just so you know i don't you probably know this but the protests against Justin Trudeau here in Canada have a weird Sikh Punjabi aspect to it. I don't know if you've seen the video, but in Toronto, they had this gigantic party uh, where you had these uh, truckers and turbans playing Bangra music. Yeah, uh, I did see it. Did you see? It was so funny. And one guy had like this gigantic speaker over his head, which is like this 200-pound speaker, and he was down... How the how do they say how the guy dance is like a concert speaker? Some guy and strong guy. Well, but what the other guy was on the, his friend's shoulders with a hockey stick. Is the middle of winter? It was like minus ten. These are truckers in downtown Toronto. I was like, this is a weird world we live in. And meanwhile, you're on CBC saying these guys are all white supremacists. I was like, really? Yeah. You know, um, I, I didn't know white supremacists uh, composed Bangra songs. Like it was just such a weird very weird weird <laughs> world we live in and then i had no idea that it was reciprocated in india with with people uh culturally appropriating our prime minister for their own, <laughs> their own pro it's so <laughs> such a strange world yeah, yeah it, it, it's it's actually very interesting that the, and this is the reason if you go on which is going to happen because the moment i release this podcast there're going to be a lot of indians who're going to be who's jonathan k uh, anyway, it was yeah. It's it's been a very surreal uh, period in Canada, um, and but and I think a lot of it. What do you think? It... Then what happens to Justin Trudeau then, and his image in the wrong run uh, about this particular act that he's uh, so enforcing? Yeah, the problem for him is that uh, the whole thing has become very tribalized. So I think you've got probably a minority of Canadians who think that it was it's wrong to ever invoke these emergency powers in regard to the protests in Ottawa. But then you have people who are hyper-partisans of him, uh, of Trudeau and, and his the, the NDP minority party that is uh, propping him up in the minority government. For those who aren't in Canada, the majority of your viewers, I guess, the NDP is sort of this left-wing party left of the Liberals that is um, propping uh, the Liberals up. It's led by a guy named Jagmeet Singh. That would be Jagmeet Singh, right? Jagmeet Singh, who maybe some of your... Viewers will have heard it. Um, but uh, many of his, his most loyal supporters will be mad that he didn't invoke this kind of draconian power very early in the crisis because 
by February 14th, which was yesterday, that would mark um, over two weeks since the protest began. And so you had a lot of people, particularly particularly Ottawa residents, who after the first weekend, they were like, let's let's get rid of these people. Let's send in uh, the riot police or the, uh, the military. Ironically, these are some of the same people who were hashtagging about abolish the police a year and a half ago, but never mind that hypocrisy. <laughs> and And so those people are angry at Trudeau because he wasn't draconian enough early. There's very few people, vanishingly slim percentage of the Canadian population that is like, yes, this is just draconian enough. Wait two and a half weeks, do nothing, sit around tweeting about how the protesters are all unacceptable, fringe, he used, uh, you know, going back to some of his, his rhetoric from September, racist and sexist, you know, defame them for, for, for weeks upon weeks, and then go overboard and invoke a law that was meant for truly epic insurrections or military uh, threats or natural disasters, I suppose. There's very few Canadians who are, <laughs> who are in that spot. They, they either think Trudeau's a tyrant or they think he's done nothing except hide. So I don't think the protesters are particularly popular. But the protesters are a pop-up movement. They're not a political party. So <clears throat> when they're gone, the the political capital that they used up, that goes with them. The liberals, on the other hand, are going to have to stand in the next federal election, which may now come earlier than, than, than many people might have thought a couple of weeks ago. So I think the liberals will lose from this. And it's not as if the conservatives, who are, are so far have gained it all from this, because... First, well, it's hard to say the Conservatives, they don't really have a permanent leader now. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, who um, probably is a more obscure figure from many of your uh, viewers, he was the leader of the uh, the Conservative Party, or what, what passes for a Conservative Party in Canada, and he resigned fairly early in this uh, Freedom Convoy saga. Although I, 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 not, I wouldn't say specifically because of the Freedom Convoy, although I don't think that helped. Um, but he just, you know, he couldn't manage the different factions within the Conservative Party. And so, yeah, I don't think the Conservative Party brand has worn well from this. But on the other hand, the Conservative Party brand will be the brand of whatever leader takes over the party. And, and we don't know who that leader is yet. So uh, I, I think that part is yet to be seen. So just like a question about the Conservative Party of Canada. So if I was to ask you a question as a layman, so what are the distinguishing characteristics, let's say, between the conservatives in America and the conservatives in Canada? And I'll give you my understanding from what I used to live when I used to live in Canada. And obviously, I've stayed a bit in America and going back and forth all the time. And the Canadian conservatives would be far more centrist in comparison oh. to the American conservatives. If, if you're an American and you look at the policy of the... Federal Conservative Party in Canada, they are on the left wing of the Democrats. So, well, look at Stephen Harper. So, so some of your viewers will know who Stephen Harper was. He was yes. a multi-term prime, prime minister before Justin Trudeau. So he had a majority government for many years. He had an opportunity to pass whatever legislation he wanted. Um, but under his rule, you had you maintained the public health monopoly. There's no capital punishment. Uh, Stephen Harper did nothing to reverse gay marriage. Gay marriage is the law of the land all across Canada. Um, we have, you know, extensive human rights protections. We have an extensive welfare state, which in some respects, Stephen Harper actually expanded the welfare state because 
It was during his tenure that you had the 2008 financial crisis, which necessitated all kinds of big government programs uh, and, and, and stimulus measures. So everything I'm just describing to a mainstream Democrat in the United States would, would appear radically left of center, especially the support of monopoly public health care. Uh, so I've always felt, well, I, it's wrong to say I've always felt, but certainly for the last few years, I think the, the fact that the conservatives have the word conservative in their brand actually doesn't help them because real conservatives of the kind an American rec would recognize just see them as a bunch of sellouts and say, you know, you're like in the United States, you have this acronym Rhino, Republican in name only. I guess in Canada, it would be, you're, you know, you're a Sino, you know, uh, conservative in name only. So real conservatives have, have no truck with them. And some of them have migrated to this um, somewhat marginal, but not insubstantial party known as the People's Party. Uh, and for the rest of Canadian centrist voters, the word conservative now has vaguely negative connotations. It's used as a term of abuse in the Canadian media. It's used as a term of abuse, I would say, um, in many social media circles, uh, many donor cir circles, uh, uh, campaign finance isn't as off the charts in Canada, certainly as the United States, but you know, political donations do matter. Uh, if I were in charge of the Conservative Party, which I very much am not, uh, one of the first things I would do is get rid of the term conservative, which, by the way, has happened in some provinces, like in, in, in British Columbia, which is one of our most populous uh, provinces, the, the de facto conservatives are, are the liberals, capital L liberals. Um, so, you know, you, you've had a rebranding of left and right there. Um, so yeah, that's, it always amazes me that anybody outside Canada would have any interest in all these arcane Canadian <laughs> political issues. And I'm, I'm sure the sound I'm hearing is people clicking off your podcast as I run through Canadian. Oh, no, 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 no. Believe me. I, I think people need to know about Canada. It's a beautiful country and, and people's party would be Maxime Bernier, right? Yeah. And so Maxime Bernier, again, this is, you know, the arcane Kremlinology of, uh, conservative politics, but yeah, he was once very much uh, in the mainstream capital C conservative fold uh, and gradually, you know, more of a libertarian and, and has drifted off um, in, into what by Canadian standards is, is the fringes of, of the conservative movement. But he is a guy who in, in, in current Republican American circles, I think would be seen as a mainstream something approaching a mainstream conservative figure. The result of which, of course, is that he's completely reviled and defamed in, in the media as, as being Nazi adjacent, because that that space within Canadian politics is just uh, routinely described in, 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 in the media as, um, you know, with epithets like xenophobic, nativist, uh, white supremacist, all that sort of thing. Uh, and by the way, I'm sure like every political movement, it, it does attract uh, some nuts and some haters. Um, but, you know, in, in my writing in Toronto, the People's Party candidate was, I think she was a refugee from Zimbabwe. She was a black woman, if I remember correctly. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, these, these, these terms of abuse in Canadian politics are, are used in a very promiscuous way. But, but that's the reality that a conservative politician has to navigate. Uh, in politics, appearance is reality. So uh, 
the real the real question for conservatives as the capital C conservatives have their leadership is whether they're going to try and co-opt Bernier's People's Party constituency uh, or stigmatize it. Um, yeah. So but but they can't do that it. I noticed when I was, yeah. Something that I noticed in Canada was how pro-immigration the Canadian Conservative Party was. And that was for me when I used to go there. They are, I thought, oh, these people would be the most anti-immigration, but they were the most pro-immigration in, in, yeah. in, well, in letting people come in. Well, that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, uh, immigrant communities in Canada are the only communities, I would say, that now have a statistically significant, exhibit statistically significant support for anything that passes for social conservative policy. Um, the other thing is immigrant communities in Canada are the only ones that are now allowed to express pride in Canada, that are allowed to be patriotic. So this, this uh, incredible display that of Sikh Canadians speaking Punjabi, uh, you know, playing Bangra music, waving the Canadian flag, hockey sticks, all this stuff in Toronto, white people to some extent aren't allowed to do this because they've been taught that Canada is a, a genocide state. So let's oh. watch this then. So you're talking about this, right? Such a Punjabi thing to do. <laughs> I, I could watch that all day. Um, but but if I'm glad you played that because if you're conservative, it's so amazing to see people express their pride in Canada instead of staring at their shoes and saying. I am a settler with internalized white supremacism who must work on my reconciliation because of all the horrors that I, my ancestors have inflicted on indigenous people or whatever. And that, that may sound like a satire of progressive uh, confessional dogmas, but what I just recited is not far. In fact, it's often identical to the kind of stuff that uh, white people are being encouraged to express as, as mainstream political sentiment, I think universities, even certain like corporate retreats where everyone is taught to get in touch with uh, their, their inner anti-racist. And as a conservative, the only people who I now see uh, consistently and unabashedly displaying their love for Canada are immigrants. And so if you're a conservative who loves Canada, I mean, I've said this on, on other podcasts, like I can't wait until there is um, a person of color a first-generation immigrant who was elected prime minister, um, you know, as opposed to some blackface white dude who's just always talking about how crap he feels about his country. I want somebody who's proud of his country. And right now that means an immigrant. So that's another thing. The other thing, which is not, which is much more um, concrete in terms of why conservatives uh, in Canada, as opposed to many other Western countries, are, are for the most part, staunchly pro-immigration, is Canada, as, as you may know, has a fairly ruthless policy in regard to who it admits and who, and who it doesn't. And if you have job skills and you're an English or French speaker, you have capital to invest, you know, we have a points-based system which ensures that the people who come into Canada generally are smarter, 
more educated, more accomplished in terms of their socioeconomic prospects. And as a result, if you're a capitalist and a conservative, uh, you know, there's many word conservative has to some extent become meaningless, but to the extent that you're, um, you know, a free market capitalist conservative, who are immigrants? They're the people starting small businesses. Uh, they're the people um, who, who are employing people in small businesses. You know, we were talking about these Sikh truck driving firms in Quebec. Um, you know, you, you have some xenophobes who are grumbling about how the trucking industry was taken over by Sikhs, but, you know, whose fault is that? You know, families working 14 hours a day uh, so I can get my Amazon deliveries. Uh, good for them. You know, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Um, and, and to some extent, there's a crossover with the pro-immigration uh, branch of the Republican Party in the United States, which which has, has been kind of uh, largely suppressed. But one of the reasons many Republicans weren't happy with the rise of Trump is they were capitalists, they were business owners who were perfectly happy to employ undocumented, undocumented Mexican immigrants, illegal, illegal aliens, I will say it, for, you know, for, for very poor wages to, to put up drywall, to do landscaping, uh, to pick fruit, to do all this menial, menial labor they couldn't get uh, native-born white people to do. And so you had a lot of Republican business owners who were like, shut up about Im immigrants. My business is going to collapse. And you did see businesses collapse once Trump went hard-ass on, on enforcing immigration policy. Um, so in, in Canada, I would say we, don't, we certainly don't have the same dynamic because we don't share a border with Mexico and most of our immigrants are high-skilled. Um, but to the extent that conservative constituencies, small business owners, um, hardworking, I don't want to use hardworking middle-class Canadians, I call that, it's uh, cliche, but I mean, immigrants are absolutely, because of the structure of our immigration system, which is not kind and gentle, you know, it's like we have the stereotype like, oh, Canada, you know, send us all your, we, 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 I think we admit something like 40 or 50,000 refugees a year, which is great. By the way, even our refugees, um, We've accepted a ton of Afghan refugees. Many conservatives were up in arms about this. They said, oh, you know, this they're going to become radicalized. Here in Toronto, um, the socioeconomic learning curve for refugees from cent Central Asia has been very steep. And you already see uh, some of their, their, ch their children in university. Uh, you see some in the media. Um, and many of them... I am happy to say have very little time for some of these very progressive ideas about um, what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say. Because if you come from a theocracy, you recognize the habits of mind of people who tell you what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say. You know, some of my biggest supporters on Twitter are Iranians who came to Canada after 1979. They know what it is. And I don't want to compare Canada to, you know, Iran under Ayatollah Khomeini. It's, it's, it's a false comparison. It's like comparing people to Hitler and stuff. Like, I don't believe in that. But they do see a hint of the ideological habits of mind that infect people who think that there's only one right way to think. And, and many white people born in Canada have lost that instinct because they don't remember the Cold War. They don't remember, you know, what, what, what it was like to live in that kind of society. But many immigrants do know what it is to live in that kind of society. And, uh, and God bless them, we need more of them, because uh, without that instinct, it's very tough to stick to liberal values. 
in a country yeah, like Canada. And you know what bothers me the most is, look, I come from a society that has quota systems and I fully support them, by the way. Um, especially the Hindu society really messed up. Uh, and, you know, the, the caste hierarchy, the way it was. And I think I fully support the quotas for scheduled caste and scheduled tribes in India. And I get pushback from a lot of listeners of this podcast for that. But I stick my neck out. I support it. I think it's the right thing to do and we should do it. But there's one thing that I'll never do. I'll never apologize. I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Now, what I see when I watch Western discourse, I, I, I don't know how else to say this, but amongst white people. I, I don't say this in a racist way. I just say this in a racial categorization amongst Caucasians. Is this, you know, self-flagellation of beating yourself up all the time and, you know, oh, but you didn't do it. Yeah, people in the past did it. You fix it. And you fixed it pretty well. I mean, I lived there. I lived in Canada in the uh, for two years nonstop from 2000 to 2002. Been going there. All the time. My wife was born and raised there. My wife was in a small town in Canada, like a small city. She's not even in Toronto, which is like a big, big Canadian city. She was in a small city and she's pretty happy. <laughs> she, 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 I mean, I don't get this. I, I don't get this self-flagellation all the time. And to be very honest, I get turned off by it when I actually meet someone who, you know, who starts saying, oh, we did this. Look, you didn't do anything. And and maybe even from my own psychological training, because I come from a Hindu background, even if I don't believe in any of the supernatural claims of Hinduism, but Hinduism is a very differently structured system where, you know, you kind of, you're only responsible for your own karma, even if it is about things that I don't believe in, like the afterlife and reincarnation. But the point is your karma is your karma. You know, it's not like, but from which is very different from, let's say, Abrahamic religions where, you know, there is the original sin and then everybody is eternally yeah. damned and, there's like a collectivist uh, streak to it at the religious level, which is very absurd for me. Sometimes when I look at it, it's like everybody is eternally damned because of what somebody it's, did yeah, 50 I mean, years ago. It's the Christian idea of religious, uh, of original sin, as you say, but uh, that's a Christian idea. Although I don't think we should let Jews off the hook, because if you read the Old Testament, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Yahweh was, was continually damning whole groups of people. For, for what their ancestors did. And um, yeah, the spirit of collective punishment runs very strong uh, through, through the Torah. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. It also just makes Western society look very unattractive because no one wants to emulate a society that lacks self-confidence. Uh, one of the reasons, you know, you had all these Republicans who went weak at the knees for, for Putin isn't because I think they actually wanted to live in Russia or they were ignorant of the fact that that Putin was a dangerous autocrat, but they admired the fact that Putin at least exhibited pride in Russian society, right? That, that he seemed to be self-confident. I mean, it was a kind of very toxic pride. And it's, as we're speaking, you know, it's a kind of an outgrowth of this may lead to the invasion of Ukraine and the killing of thousands of people. So it's a very toxic nationalistic phenomenon, but people are drawn to this kind of thing. People are drawn to confident people and they're drawn to confident societies. And the, the people I see in our own, my own society in Canada who are confident, many of them are French Canadian because they live in Quebec and they, many of, not all, but many have no time for this sort of Anglo guilt cult. Um, but many of them are immigrants uh, who, have, who have the confidence uh, of the decisions they've made in life, including coming to Canada. 
Um, it, for my own sake, I think I've been a little bit insulated from this because I happen to come from a Jewish tradition. So, you know, in my old life, I, I worked in um, maybe a very progressive sector of Canadian arts and letters. And I, I was constantly being invited to like do penance for what my ancestors did. And I said, I'm sorry, like my ancestors didn't build synagogues on indigenous reserves. You know, there, there was no Jewish residential schools on indigenous reserves. So, um, you know, you can go to your prayer blanket and ask for absolution. I'm just going to stay right here and, and not do that. Thank you very much. And interesting, at Quillette, many of my writers, uh, not just immigrants, but uh, are gay or lesbian or trans uh, or Jewish, Muslim, because the fact that there's a marker of difference that allows them to stand out from the mainstream of guilty progressive white society, it gives them some license to think independently. Um, and, and I don't think it's a coincidence that most of my writers at, at Quillette um, who are free thinkers uh, are, are diverse. Um, I think to some extent diversity has become an anti-progressive quality because diversity <laughs> gives you a license to use your brain. Uh, the people who have no license to use their brain um, are people who are, you know, you do, I'm sure people know about this intersectional pyramid or I don't, I don't know what physical metaphor is being used now where like, you know, they're, they're not gay, they're not trans, they're not immigrant, they're not people of color, they're not black, they're not indigenous, they got nothing. Impression Olympics. Impression Olympics, they're, they're at like, they didn't even make the qualifying round. You know, if they were snowboarders, you know, they, they fell on the first jump and landed on their face. These are the people who don't get up, sit there with snow on their face, begging the world for forgiveness. It isn't just a perverse political phenomenon. It's just boring and sanctimonious on a personal social level. Like some of my friends, uh, or I guess maybe former friends, who have gone in for this cult, uh, one or two relatives actually, we've become estranged not so much because I disagree with their politics. Because when I, when I get together socially with people, uh, we don't talk about politics. I generally try not to. I find it, you know, it's something I do on Twitter. It's, it's, it's the fact that they're, they bore me. Um, because a person who joins a cult or a religious movement and who just talks endlessly about their cult, um, whether I agree with the cult or don't agree with the cult, I don't want to hear about it all the time. Like I don't, um, I don't care about your penance. You don't have to confess to me. And it's impossible to hear all this stuff without interpreting, interpreting it as a form of, of, of sanctimonious virtue signal because their real audience is other believers in their cult. You know, they, they want to be seen, you know, they, <laughs> they want to be seen as doctrinaire. Um, but that desire to advance through the ranks of their own movement is just is tedious to people who aren't in the movement. And, and, and that's, unfortunately, I think that's how a lot of uh, friendships are ended in, in the modern age. Um, again, for, you know, for the same reason that at another time I, I would have lost friends become, because they become religious fanatics or they went in hard for the Trump cult. I lost friends who went into the Trump cult and wouldn't shut up about making America great again. It's like, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't care. Like, you know, it's just save that for your Reddit group. You know, I want to talk about board games or disc golf or, um, you know, or your kids or something like that. So, um, yeah, this is, this, this is a political and cultural problem that has become a social problem. I think that, you know, this comes from this. So I remember 90s was the new atheism peak and 
new atheism was all about smash religion right now yeah, i think it ended up being a bad idea because look what came back out of it because you know we we're, we're all meaning seeking people and people sought meaning oh man the new one does not even have repentance you know there is no redeeming here so i have you a controversial i have a controversial opinion which is going to get me canceled with your your atheistic listeners <laughs> which is that when christopher hitchens died it was a tragedy that he died young because he was a magnificent writer but mm. it also saved him from sliding into become a parody of himself which which happens to everybody all strong thinkers all militant thinkers whether you're woke or anti-woke and you see this actually with anti-woke people anti-woke people who I start off saying oh man you know it's just yeah preach brother and then like a year later their podcast is like all this anti-vaccine bullshit i'm like mm, stop preaching brother and christopher hitchens was a brilliant guy he was at slate i just uh, republished his stuff in the national post i'd be interested to know if christopher hitchens had lived longer i'm wondering if he might have succumbed to some of this sort of militant extremism that that has infused all intellectual subcultures and maybe one of the reasons we we remember him so fondly is he tragically passed away before he got co-opted into a kind of extreme version of his own belief system which is which is an occupational hazard for all of us if you'd indulge me by explaining the meaning of your podcast sure 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 so so my podcast is called the uh, charvak podcast so in hindu philosophy in indian philosophy originally i would not use the word hindu because at that time there was just one philosophy uh, sikhism is a very new religion at that time so in indian philosophy there are schools they are called darshans darshans are ways of uh, a, you know if darshan is an insight or and uh, they basically are the ways of looking at the world so there were six astika darshanas and three nastika darshanas so what does astika mean and what does nastika mean so uh, unfortunately a misinterpretation a lot of people have on uh, on mainstream discussions is they think astika is someone who believes in a god and nastika in sanskrit is someone who does not believe in a divine uh, creature or 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 a entity or something of that sort uh, on the contrary it's totally different so astika and nastika differentiation in the olden times was based on whether you think the vedas are the supreme authority the vedas being the rigveda there are four vedas so uh, rigveda being the primary book and whether so just how hinduism is structured is there is shruti which is the word that shall not be changed and then there are smritis that are interpretations according to the time and place and they contain a lot of rules and regulations and there is no one smriti there are like hundreds of smritis written in hinduism which is so because hinduism is structured in a very different way say like this is really it's so it's so legalistic it's uh yeah it's, yeah, yeah. They, they write too much <laughs> no but it's almost like, no but it's almost like the distinction between constitutional law and statutory law and regulatory yeah, law yeah, yeah. yeah so so there's the constitution and then like in america the constitution is very small but you'll have 40000 pages of regional laws and stuff like yeah. that so this is something like that it's so so what happened was the six the, so the school that i have named my podcast on is called the charvak podcast so charvakas were the hedonists and the materialists and um, they basically said that they rejected the authorities of the vedas uh, there is no such thing as reincarnation for example uh, and and at that time you know they were based on like there were different elements so like earth water fire ether 
for example i'm just give, i'm not giving you the whole shebang as such but so the charvakas would say you know uh, your body is made out of these elements and uh, that's it when you're dead it's game over there is nothing beyond that and people who do these rituals are just into silly things but interestingly like the jains and the buddhists were also called nastikas because they rejected the authorities of the vedas but the interesting bit is the jains and buddhists they may not believe in a ishwar as in a deity but they do believe in reincarnation so and, and, it's and, very complicated and jainism is its own faith yes yeah 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 jainism yeah. is its own darshan buddhism is its own darshan and even inside buddhism there is madhyamika and there are different obviously over a period of time you know you had theravada hinayana mahayana and then madhyamika there are multiple schools uh, even in jainism there are you know sthanakvasis deravasis different 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 schools just like in any other you know group and so the charvakas were this they were the ex- the extreme version where no reincarnation no karma theory nothing else just pure hedonism live your life to the fullest that kind of a thing and obviously this is the representation of the charvakas as per the people who steal mand them because the charvaka books just don't exist there's no primary first hand book the only book there is one book and that is also written in a style in sanskrit which is called vitanda which is basically he's taking the mickey out of everybody else's position without stating his own position that's a style of writing in sanskrit in the ancient times but the six astika schools they also had schools like sankhya now sankhya believed in reincarnation but sankhya again did not believe in a deity like an ishwar and in fact if i remember it was verse 56 or 57 i don't remember please don't quote me in the sankhya karika which is the main book of the sankhya school that clearly states there is no need for a god so it's very interesting so the differentiation was not based on a belief in a ishwar where like hindus would not use the word god they will say ishwar because they they believe god means in a very abrahamic sense from a very abrahamic meaning and they they would use the word ishwar so it was it was based on the vedas and do you consider them to be an authority and uh, so that's how it is and i my personal journey was that i was a typical guy i think i was around i'm 41 today so around the age of 18 19 was when i lost basically all kinds of faith and and i i was the typical guy who went into like i say dawkins in this uh, dawkins and hitchens and harris and 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 maybe dan dennett and you know the four horsemen as they say of new atheism <laughs> uh, and and then i i realized that was not me that was not my journey i was i i don't know i i just find you know atheists coming out of abrahamic backgrounds to me seem to be a lot more angry I, i'm not trying to generalize here but i just was not that angry and and for me it i did not fit in there it's almost as if you know the atheists coming out of abrahamic religions are as angry as probably the bible or the quran or the torah yeah. is and 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 it's like you know you you can only reject what you were and it, the the response seems to be disproportionately bad in my view and i can't relate to that like i see new atheists nowadays coming up like yeah So, eating the Quran and eating so it up, I, I find it disgusting. I usually make a point of not commissioning Quillette articles on on podcasts, but would you be interested in writing something about the unique atheistic tradition vis-a-vis the Western atheistic tradition, which arises out of sure. the? See that that'd be amazing. And now, now I can justify to my boss all this time I spend on podcasts because at the end of it, <laughs> at the Claire, if you're watching, I just got I just got a, a kick-ass article out of it. So thank you, Kusha. Uh, 
yeah so so that's about it but uh, so this is uh this is what the school is all about it is basically a rejection of vedic authority on the schools and and but uh, obviously i'm not a full blown guy because look do even if the charvakas were what the second hand sources say they were i'm not that person anymore i am someone who believes that if epicureans had a great idea i'll take it from them if socrates had a great idea i'll take it from socrates if shri krishna in the bhagavad gita had a great idea i will take it from shri krishna if uh, shri ram had a great idea in the ramayana i'll take it from the ramayana why should i you know restrict myself by being this cult like charvak would be like no 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 everything is bad i'm not like i'm not a religion hating disbeliever i don't know how else to say but can we also talk about religion. how chavarka is just a great name for a podcast and it looks amazing because you've got those great accents over the two a's so from a, a purely superficial point of view it's one of the reasons i came on it just sounded like a classy podcast so like let's not let's not overlook the incredibly superficial branding aspects of this because i well, i don't know i i took it because i it, this was a this was a school that was very dear to me Uh, a school that I, I i wanted to revive in i'd a never heard point. of it i mean i'd never heard of anything you're talking about it's a, so one aspect of i guess owning my whiteness is that people like you who study philosophy are expected to be fluent in the western philosophical and even theological idiom you have to know about abrahamic faiths but there are people who get phd's in philosophy and theology who have no idea of anything you're talking about who are completely ignorant of the eastern currents of uh of spiritualism and philosophy that's i mean i've read books about that i've never heard about the stuff you're talking about never yeah, it's it's interesting but uh, like at least in philosophy circles i'm sure they might be aware of that uh, like serious philosophy professors i'm sure let's say if i was talking to peter bogosian i'm sure he must be knowing about but let's say you could you could spend your life studying wittgenstein or something like that and and i'm sure never encounter stuff like this Oh, oh that that's pretty sure in fact you know a lot of times it comes across oh you know i've been accused of trying to be different for the heck of being different it's okay i mean i i do not classify myself as an atheist i'm very clear about it i'm not an atheist i'm a charvak and there's a reason for that is because i i just don't i don't want to be clubbed in that that part because i just see too many angry people there and 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 i'm not really an angry person no I'm you seem really friendly happy. you see <laughs> you seem militantly friendly <laughs> yes no and and the thing is like i, I most of my friends are religious people most mm. of my friends I, i don't have any problem with them as long as they don't impose their religiosity on me i have no issue that i, I think we live like in mom. an age we live in an age where it's easier for an atheist and a religious person to be friends than for a woke and an anti-woke person to be friends in my opinion Oh absolutely that's such yeah. a profound thing that you have said I, i i could not agree more with you like there are times like you know my friend i mean shout out to razib khan uh, razib's a well known yeah, guy uh, on social media i know all yeah, about him. razib and i yeah so i'm very fond of him i know him personally and you know there are times i i talk to razib and say like, i i don't know how to say this. like what's wrong with these people why are they so mad all the time and he's like what do you do that guy <laughs> that's all razib says <laughs> he and i say this with affection he is a world class shit disturber He is absolutely <laughs> absolutely and i know a thing or two i know a thing or two about the subject so i i, I unfortunately i got to go i have a dog who needs walking um but but uh thank you for having me on i appreciate it uh, no 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 the pleasure is mine uh jonathan and uh, you know i hope uh, you know 
one day uh, we will uh, meet maybe uh, i'm due to visit canada if all these restrictions are relaxed so maybe we will meet up and and you know uh, i'm looking forward to your next work so i'm looking for forward to your next work i just commissioned a piece from you so uh, i expect it by the end of the month talk soon <laughs> bye all right all right all right guys so when you go to the description of this podcast you will see the links to everything jonathan does so there'll be a link to his uh, website where maybe you just go on jonathan's website you can get all the links to the kulet podcast and his articles on the national post and everything else please go and subscribe to kulet too it's a great platform i i read it regularly they have some great articles and you know if you like the charwork podcast you know the drill please subscribe to the channel like the video and if you want you can support the charwork podcast too i'll see you guys next time until then take care Bye.